invite your attention again to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7. We'll take quite a long section today from Genesis 7, verse 11, to Genesis 8, verse 19. 7, 11 to 8, 19. This is the account of the flood from the time it started to rain until they stepped out on dry ground. Genesis 7, 11 to 8, 19. You've all heard someone say, well, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Well, that's kind of how I feel this morning as I come to this text and try to share it with you. I've got good news and I've also got bad news. The good news is that God keeps his promises. The bad news is God keeps his promises. Let me read the text. Familiar story, but let's hear it again as if we haven't heard it uh, through the eyes of the mother goose tail mentality. Let's hear it as God's word. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the 17th day of the second month, on that day all springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and, the rain, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. On that very day Noah and his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth and the ark flowed on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that, sw that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark and he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep, the floodgates of heaven had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The waters receded, receded steadily from the earth and at the end of the, 150 day, uh, of, the, of the 150 days, the water had gone down and on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month and on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened the window he had made in the ark and set out a, sent out a raven 
and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground, but the dove could find no place to set its feet because there was water all over the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. And God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife, your sons and their wives, bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground, and all the birds, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and the clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offering on it. And we'll stop there. There's really only one truth that I have uh, to share with you this morning from this passage, and I just want us to reflect on it and try to digest it, though we're going to come at it in two opposite ways. And that one truth is what I mentioned earlier, and that's this, that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. That is, at the same time, bad news for some, and wonderful good news for others. Let's start with bad. God keeps his promise to judge. God keeps his promise to judge. There seem to be a lot of indulgent parents around these days. Parents who, no matter what they might threaten, really end up letting their children do whatever they please. I'm sure you've heard the scenario, you've watched it and uh, been amazed. Johnny, please don't do that. Johnny, I said don't do that. Johnny, stop that. Son, if you don't stop that, you're going to be in big trouble. That's it. You're going to be punished. You're going to be sorry. Johnny, why won't you stop that? Son, please don't do that anymore. It's giving me a headache. It's frustrating me. All right, I give up. Do whatever you please. You seen that routine? <laughs> That's a terrible routine, for it teaches our children that no doesn't really mean no if you're gutsy enough to defy it. It teaches kids that the limits will always give way if you just push on them hard enough. Most tragically, that kind of parenting, promising but not carrying through, makes kids think that God is the same kind of authority figure. But that's not true. When God speaks, 
That's how it is. When God threatens, he means business. When God promises, he does what he says. God keeps his promise. That certainty of God's judgment in response to his promises of judgment is portrayed for us very pointedly in these verses. For a couple of chapters now, since the beginning of uh, chapter 6, we have heard God threatening, God promising to judge. With increasing fullness of promise, he has said what he's going to do. Beginning in chapter 6, verse 3, there we read that the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. That's how long I'll put up with him. Chapter 6, verse 7, he promised, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, and creatures that move along the ground, birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. 6.13, he pointedly explained to know, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Chapter 6, verse 17, God pr pronounced his certain coming judgment. He said, I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. With increasing measure, God has made promises of his judgment. And finally, in chapter 7, verse 4, God made it very clear that time has run out. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. You, you see, there was no uncertainty about what God had promised. There was no wondering what he might do about man's corruption and wickedness. Well, the problem wasn't that they had no way of knowing it just seemed that no one much believed what he said. They ignored it. But God keeps his promises. In our text this morning, that's exactly what we have described several places. In verses 11 and 12, we read, In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day the springs of the great deep burst forth, the floodgates of heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. Down in verse 17, we see it describing for forty days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth, the waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. And then down in verse 21, the description becomes very vivid. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished, Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind, everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living creature on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds in the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. Can there be any question of what the scripture means for us to understand here? God keeps his promise. In this case, his promise to judge. Now for hundreds of years, 
until just recently, in fact, Christians everywhere, and most all church people, and even a host of other people who didn't even claim to be Christians, have just assumed that the Bible meant what it said. That God inundated the whole world with a flood, just like it said here. But more recently, people have become increasingly skeptical of that. Many claiming support for modern science have come to assume just the opposite. Of course, there was never such a flood. Of course, events like that never really happened. Well, I've never seen a flood like that. The Bible must just be retelling old myths. And indeed, many Christians, pastors, teachers, host of lay people, have been caught up in such teaching and are now, frankly, embarrassed that an account like that should be in our Bibles. And so we can't read this and talk about this and preach this without at least raising the question, was there really a worldwide flood? Is there any evidence to support the Bible's claim? Or are Christians who believe such things just proving Mark Twain right when he said, faith is just believing what you know ain't so? Well, there is some evidence. There have been several books written trying to pull evidence together. I can't possibly read them all to you, but let me share a few little pieces of evidence. There's some geological evidence. This is actually the hardest thing to consider for the, the evidence to be assessed is as great as the whole earth itself, and as, as varied as what individual geologists have come to see and know. And yet in recent years, some Christians in the scientific community have tried to put together coherent geological theories of how the flood helps account for the geological record. And they don't all agree. There's some very uh, significant uh, uh, Christian geologists who who uh, don't agree with uh, some of the more popular views. I think of uh, Davis Young as one who, uh, who, who, who says there's some real problems with some of the more popular views that Christians have come up with, and yet he himself says, I, I lean toward the fact that there was a worldwide flood. Whether we can sort out all of those pieces of evidence or even know them all, there, there are some impressive things that I think might be hard to explain without a flood. Dr. James Boyce, who we've prayed for and you, who you know that I enjoy reading and depend on his work, he has several chapters where he goes through evidence of this. Let me share a couple of pieces of evidence that I learned from him. For one thing, scattered throughout the world in various places are large caches of animal bones in what geologists call rubble drift in ociferous fissures. Fissures are these cracks in the earth, like it would be caused by an earthquake. And these have been found in all different parts of the world, in England, France, Spain, Germany, Russia, the United States. And the rubble drift is material that has been deposited in those fissures by water, apparently when the cracks occur. And that rubble includes bones, it's parts of many different kinds of animals. Elephants, rhinoceroses, hippopotamuses, reindeer, horses, pigs, oxen. Not whole skeletons, but all kinds of bones mixed together and crammed in this crack in the earth. 
animals not normally found together, animals who are natural enemies, yet their bones are here together. Most interestingly, these deposits usually occur on isolated hills of considerable height. The Rock of Gibraltar has a bone-filled fissures that are 300 feet deep. The cavern near Palermo, Sicily, 20 tons of bones are found. The northwest corner of Nebraska, there's a hill on which a bone bed was discovered in 1876. It's estimated that the bones of about 9,000 animals are buried on this one hill. What accounts for these things? What drove all kinds of animals who are natural enemies to high ground and then tore them apart and rolled them together and deposited them in some crack somewhere? What but a massive worldwide flood? Another little piece of evidence is the remarkable preservation of thousands upon thousands of mammoths in northern Siberia. You have probably seen pictures of mammoths. They look like huge woolly elephants, only bigger. They have huge tusks, perhaps 10 feet long, weighing maybe 200 pounds instead of 40 pounds like an elephant's tusk. Well, in northern Siberia, near the Arctic Circle, in that flat land of frozen soil that never completely thaws, untold thousands of mammoth carcasses are encased in the ice. Perhaps as many as five million of these creatures perished at one time. Frozen suddenly buried and preserved intact as an icy testimony of some great event. But what? What known geologic or atmospheric event could account for this mass killing followed by a whole change in climate to freeze them in place? Could it be that when the Bible says, that on that day the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were open so that every living thing that moved on the ground perished. Could it be that such events drastically changed the earth enough to account for millions of frozen mammoths instantly killed? Oh, but that's not the only kind of evidence. There's, there are the flood traditions. In 1872, a young man named George Smith was working for the Department of Antiquities at the British Museum. He was translating some cuneiform, that's an lang ancient language, uh, cuneiform inscriptions on little clay tablets. They looked like little charcoal briquettes that used to write on them. These were little clay tablets from the Assyrian city, city of Nineveh, ancient writings. And as um, George Smith was translating, he came upon a passage about Somebody sending the dove out of the boat and seeing if it came back and if the flood had receded. And he said, whoa, what is this? And he began to look for other fragments of this story and went back and looked for some more tablets and finally pieced together what has become a Babylonian account of the flood, which in spite of many differences has striking similarities to the Genesis account. 
Here seems to be independent evidence, a, a, a parallel account written by someone else, bearing witness to the authenticity of an ancient massive flood. Oh, but that Babylonian account is just the beginning, folks. In a book called The Ark on Ararat, the authors LaHaye and Morris present a full listing of peoples and cultures around the globe who have in their history, uh, in their, in their uh, uh, traditions, legendary flood stories. I actually counted how many are on the list. 213 different people, groups, or cultures from all over the world, from the Middle East and Africa, from the Pacific Islands, from the Far East, from Europe and Asia, Greek cultures, Greek authors, from North America, from Central America, from South America. People with flood traditions in their culture. Now admittedly, the details of those flood stories vary, but uh, Jim Boyce in relating this as, uh, talks about the tremendous agreement between them, let me quote, he says, in 88% of these flood stories, there is a favored family. In 70%, survival is due to a boat. In 95%, the sole cause of the catastrophe is a flood. In 66%, the disaster is due to man's wickedness. In 67%, animals are also saved. In 57% of the stories, survivors end up on a mountain. In smaller percentages, birds are sent out. A rainbow is mentioned. Eight persons specifically are saved. Where did these widespread flood stories come from? Well, suppose with me for a moment that the Bible is right, and that there really was such a flood, and that the only people left on the earth was Noah and his family, and that all the peoples on earth came from that family. Can't you imagine that Noah and his son and daughters-in-law told their children about this experience. And their children told their children's children. And it was passed down through the age. How could it not be passed down? Something as massive as what the Bible describes. Now, certainly the story would take on cultural twists and turns as it passed from generation to spread generation over the centuries, spread around the globe. But the mere presence of such widespread traditions, all the way to the South Sea Islands, the native tribes of North America, seems to argue that something happened, something like what our text describes. I can't prove to you that there was a worldwide flood. No one could prove that to you. There will always be some evidence that is unexplainable. But I hope that I could convince you that you don't have to throw away your brains to believe what the Bible says. Indeed, I would convince you that it is foolishness to disregard what the Bible says. For here, God would have you to know, without any question, whether you can explain it all or not, that He keeps his promises. He did here. He always will. Specifically, he keeps his promise to judge. No, oh, dear people, the whole world 
is counting on the assumption that this is not true. Many people, especially in this land, know something about the Lord, have heard something of his word. Many know his promises in Jesus, his promise that Jesus will return, his promise of judgment. And yet the world spins merrily along, delving deeper and deeper into more kinds of sin, finding it rather exciting to throw away their old Christian faith and find some new kind of thing to believe. All assuming that none of that really is true. The Apostle Peter tells us that's exactly what the scene will be right before judgment comes. People scoffing, say, where's the promise? Everything goes on like it always has been. Jesus himself said, when I return, it will be just like this. People partying, having fun, living their lives, married, giving in marriage, and the Son of Man will appear. In other words, this text, is given for our edification, for our warning. It's designed to teach us. Don't be misled by the apathy around you. God will keep his promises to judge. Are you living in light of that day? Are you ready for that day? Or would you bet your eternal soul on some assumption that God does not mean what he says? Well, I'm reminded when God says, don't be deceived, God is not mocked. What you sow, you reap. Well, that's the bad news. Judgment's certain because God keeps his promise. But there's also good news in our text. Which brings us to our second point. God keeps his promise. God keeps his promise to save as well as to judge. If the flood were as colossal an event as the Bible describes, imagine for a moment what life was like for Noah. We have seen it rain 40 days straight around here, haven't we? I think this time last year, wasn't it still raining? How depressing. It wasn't just the 40 days of rain here. There was the 40 days and 40 nights of rain, and then the flood prevailed for 150 days. And then the flood receded for another 150 days until the ark landed and the mountaintops became visible. And then the earth dried for another 40 days before Noah sent out the raven and the dove. And then he waited another seven days and sent the dove out again and it returned with the olive sheet. And then he waited another seven days and he sent it out and it didn't return. And then he waited another seven days until God finally gave him permission to leave the ark. Altogether, Noah was in that ark for a year. A year. And you think the manure gets thick around here by spring. We won't go there. But it's not just the isolation and the depression and 
burden of being cooped up in this ark for a year. The earth, during all that time is, or much of that time is, completely covered with water through some cataclysmic event. Can you imagine that you would ever want to be afloat on such an ocean? Even an ocean liner, let alone a wooden barge. I can't imagine that it didn't creak and groan under the stress of the sea. I can't imagine that the waters were nice and calm and placid and they floated gently along, listening to the birds sing. Here's Noah riding out the storm probably unable to see much. We know he had a window, but it appears that he couldn't see too much out of that window. But if he could, it would be even more frightening. People dying in the early days. And then, nothing but water. Churning, surging water. What a picture. A homemade barge with eight lonely souls and thousands of animals crammed in it. Wondering, adrift on the ocean, wondering what's going to happen to us. Well, you remember, Noah knew why this flood came, to destroy the wicked, and Noah also knew he too was wicked. How many days, how many weeks, how many months of this before Noah began to think, I wonder if God is destroying us, too. Noah might well have come to cry as the disciples did when Jesus was sleeping in the boat. Master, don't you care that we perish? Oh, but God did care. For God keeps his promises. There's a wonderful picture here that I would never pick up, and I'm sure you would never pick up, but as I read the scholars and they tell me all these wonderful things and I learn about how the text is all structured, there's a literary device used here. Alan Ross points it out. There's a literary device called a chiasm. That comes from the Greek letter chi. It's like a big X. And, and what it means is that what happens up here gets reversed down here. So that, so that the first... The first truth is parallel to the last truth. And the second truth is parallel to the second from last truth. And the third truth is parallel to the third from last truth. And the fourth, you know, you get the picture, until we center down, and right here is the central truth. It's a literary device. It's a way that an author can, can help you to see that, like big arrows pointing from every direction, don't miss this. This is the wonderful truth here. And what's that central truth? Where is it? Well, it's in chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. That's the wonderful truth. But God remembered Noah. You see, this is what God wants us to see here. Not just that he kept his promise to judge, but that God kept his promise to save. That's what this term, God remembered, means. As one writer explained, a study of the word remember, the, the Hebrew word is zachar. A study of the word remember will show 
that the essence of God's remembering lies in his acting towards someone because of his previous commitment. In other words, to say God remembered Noah is to say that God faithfully kept his promise that he had made to Noah by intervening to end the flood. God keeps his promise to save. Oh, this picture of God faithfully remembering his ancient promises is not unusual in the Bible. We read that God remembered, uh, remembered Abraham. God remembered this one, and God remembered that one. God keeps his promise. In fact, this whole section, in this whole section, the things that God remembered and the things we read is reminiscent of the section where God brought his people, Israel, out of Egypt. Think of the parallels. God remembered Noah here. Well, in Exodus 2, we read that the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned for them. God remembered. And then in Genesis 8 here, we read that uh, God sent a wind over the earth so that the waters would recede and that people could step out safely on dry land. And sure enough, when we go back to that Exodus account, we read Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and threw it and, and, turn, and, and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided. The Israelites went through the sea on dry ground. Very similar stories. Now, I don't think, don't think that's an accident. This account of Genesis here, this whole account of the flood, was given to God's people, Israel, through Moses, right after that time that they came out of Egypt and before they went into the Promised Land. When they read this account, what did they learn? They learned, you know, the way that God delivered us is the way that God delivered Noah. God remembers his covenant. He remembered it for us. He remembered it for Noah. Now that's something they desperately needed to live, to know, because they were about to enter a hostile land, and they were about to live all their days hanging on this great truth. God keeps his promises. God remembers his covenant. They need to know this, and you and I need to know this. For knowing and believing this, our faith rests secure, knowing that God faithfully uh, keeps his people safe. God faithfully takes us in the way that he has planned. We can know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, for God keeps his promise. I don't know what your situation is this morning. It may look very bleak. You may be discouraged. You may be guilt-ridden. You may be filled with despair. You may, you may feel as though you are adrift on a sea of helplessness and hopelessness. You may find that there's nowhere you can stand, nothing that you can count on. Well, if that's where you are, let me remind you of this great rock of a promise. Here's a great biblical truth that will not move. This is the kind of truth that God reminded his people of in Isaiah 40, where he says, Why do you complain? 
Why do you say, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord, that my cause is disregarded by my God? Oh, no. God keeps his promises. Now, let's be crystal clear about what promises we're talking about. Not a promise to save everyone. Indeed, God promises he will destroy the wicked and the unbelieving. No, that's not his promise. God's promise is that he has provided a safe place in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This Jesus went to the cross and paid for our sins. He rose from the dead proving that God was satisfied with that payment. Now he calls us to come to himself when we're weary and heavy laden, when we realize that we have no place to hide in the face of God's promised judgment. Come to me, he says, and I will give you rest. He commands us to drop what we're doing, to turn away from every other hope, and to put our whole faith in him, to begin to follow him, to be his disciple. And for those who do, for those who know who he knows has his own, he is our ark of safety. He promises. And God always keeps his promise. When I call you to cast yourself on the mercy of Jesus, to call upon him in faith, to rest your soul on his promises, that is a place of safety. That's the only place of safety in the coming flood of God's judgment. Well, our text ends with Noah and the seven others exiting the ark. Can you imagine how they felt? I'm sure they felt like kicking up their heels and celebrating, kissing the ground, running with glee, stretching their legs, breathing the fresh air, enjoying the sacred silence. <laughs> but look what they did, verse 20. And Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. And the Lord smelled a pleasing aroma. Noah first worshipped. God remembered him. He remembered God. God kept covenant with him. He kept covenant with God. He gathered his family before the Lord. And he built an altar and he offered a burnt offering. An animal kept alive through all this ordeal for this whole year for this purpose, to offer to the Lord in thanksgiving. A burnt offering, an offering which we later would learn represents the worshiper's total surrender and dedication to the Lord. God had granted Noah and these others a new beginning. What great. Noah remembered the Lord and worshipped him. You see, this is to be our response. We don't offer little animals anymore. But he, has, he does give us a new beginning in Christ. And he calls us to a life of worship, of total surrender, joyful dedication. Such a response is still a sweet aroma to the Lord. Got good news? Got bad news. Bad news is God keeps his promise. And he's promised to judge. You can take it to the bank. It's going to happen. 
But the good news is, God provides salvation in Jesus. And that is absolutely certain and safe for everyone who trusts in him. Amen. Shall we pray? Thank you, dear Lord, for this great uh, truth of your word that we see played out not in some theological uh, treatise, but in people's lives, in the history of the world, in things beyond our imagination, things that we will never understand until we see you and have you explain it all to us. And yet things in which you teach us enough to know of your faithfulness, to know that we're not just dealing with some fickle person like ourselves, we are dealing with the God who is unchangeable, the God who keeps his word. Oh Lord, give us the grace to trust you and to turn from every, every other allegiance and to follow you with all of our heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.